0: Would you all stand for the reading of God's word? From Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
1: Well, good morning. It's great to have you today. I don't know about you guys, but I'm glad to be back in Burris Hall. For some of you guys that have just started coming here this summer, this is a new location for you, but for most of us, it kind of feels like home. So we're glad to glad to be back, glad for the kindness and provision of the Lord and the folks at First Baptist to get the air conditioning fixed so we could not only be back in here, but be back in here and be comfortable. Um, so it's good to good to be here. And again, uh, I'm glad to have you with us. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to imagine what it was like to hear those words that Abby just read to us uh, the first time they were heard out loud. And, you know, Long before Philippians chapter 2 was a, a book, a part of a book in the New Testament, it was, of course, first a letter written in the first century Roman world. And you can imagine at the time for the folks in Philippi, it would have been a big deal to get a letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was probably the most well-known Christian on the planet at the time. Uh, Paul had had a hand in starting their church. Uh, You can read about about it in the book of Acts where he met a lady named Lydia who was a kind of prominent merchant, and he shared the gospel with her. She came to Christ. In, In reaching her, she and him together, along with some other folks, began to reach other Philippians and they began to build them into a church. You see kind of our own mission statement play out there in the book of Acts as individuals are reached, they they are converted, they come to Christ, and then they come together and form a church. Then they're built up as a church and then they begin to send others out. And that's exactly what had happened in Philippi. Uh, Paul had been a huge part of that. And then of course he had traveled on to other lands. And at this point he had sent his friend Timothy to check in on them, to bring back a report of how things were doing. And then this was his response to that report. And we don't know exactly what they did when they received a letter from the Apostle Paul, but I I think it's safe to assume they probably gathered the church together, something like what we're doing here, and they got everybody in a place where they could all hear, and then they probably opened up the letter and read it aloud to the congregation. And so you can imagine how the church was feeling as they were hearing the things in this letter. Much of the letter is affirming, uh, much of it is encouraging, Uh, Paul gives some personal updates. He expresses gratitude for their continued support of him and his ministry. He exhorts them to press on in their spiritual growth in the Lord. But there's this one issue that's kind of threaded throughout the whole letter. And if you're just reading Philippians as an outsider, you may not even notice it at first. But the reason I bring it up in context of thinking about when it was originally read is I just think the people that heard this for the first time knew exactly what Paul was talking about as soon as he referenced it. So it it comes up first in verse 27 because there's some issue, verse 27, chapter 1, there's some issue in the Philippian church that has caused some kind of disagreement and some factions have formed. We don't know exactly what they were like and exactly how they were divided, but as you imagine that church gathered together to hear Paul's letter read to them, I think you can safely imagine that they were sort of divided on at least a couple of sides. And so you can imagine how they felt when they heard what we know as verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, that's good. We like that. That sounds like a good plan. So that, Paul says, you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. You can imagine if you're in a, in a group of people that are sort of divided into two sides and you hear Paul say that a life lived in, that is worthy of the gospel is a life that links arms with others and strives side by side with them, you can imagine you start to feel a little uncomfortable at this point. And then throughout the letter, Paul gives these different examples of people who humbly serve the Lord lay aside their own interest for the sake of the greater good. He mentions himself as an example, the Apostle Paul. He mentions his friend Timothy. He mentions a guy named Epaphroditus who had come from the Philippian church and was now serving alongside of Paul himself. And then, of course, most of all, chiefly among them, he he mentions Christ himself in the passage that we read just a moment ago. And so you can imagine with each of those references, the people in the room that are a bit at odds at that moment are starting to get less and less comfortable with what they're hearing. And then you get to chapter 4. You turn the page of your Bible, you'll see it. Chapter 4, verse 2, things begin to get really, truly awkward. Because Paul says, after kind of hinting at these disagreements throughout the letter, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Eodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, those are the names of two particular women who would have been in all likelihood, in that room at that time. And based on what we can gather from the situation and based on the history we can kind of put together here, it seems that they were in disagreement with one another over something, and their disagreement was dividing the church. So maybe in that room, as everyone's hearing this letter read for the first time, They're kind of divided on different sides. And Iodia's over in this corner and Syntyche's over in this corner. And each of the ladies kind of have their people that are next to them, that are on their side, that know how bad those other folks are. And Paul's been kind of hinting at unity. He's been hinting at humility. He's pointing them to Jesus. And all of a sudden he calls them out. He says, you, you, you need to agree in the Lord. You need to get over this. You need to lay aside your differences for the sake of the greater good. We don't know exactly what was going on in that room in the moment, but I think we can safely assume that everyone else did. And they knew exactly what Paul was talking about when he referred to this disagreement. Now, I think it's helpful to study this passage against that backdrop because it just helps us understand the details a little bit more and understand the context a bit more. But it also gives us a warning because here's the thing. If this could happen in Philippi, a relatively healthy, gospel-minded church becoming divided, potentially over primarily a disagreement between two people, if this can happen in Philippi, it could happen anywhere. I mean, if you read on in chapter 4 there, in verse 3, you find that Iodia and Syntyche were not historically troublemakers. Paul says they formerly labored side by side with him in the gospel. Meaning they did ministry alongside of him. They were godly women who served the Lord with Paul. He affirms that their names are written in the book of life. So he's not saying these are wolves in your midst or anything like that. He's saying these are genuine believers. They love the Lord. They've even served the Lord together. And now they're at odds. Now they are in some kind of disagreement, warring with one another, and locked in some kind of prideful struggle for supremacy. So the question I want us to think about is, could that happen here? Could that happen here at Midlands Church? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to answer, absolutely. It absolutely could happen here. Each of us possess a heart that is instinctively self-focused. And when a group of people who are concerned about self-preservation and self-promotion come together it's inevitable that some conflict is going to ensue. And even genuine Christians can fall into factions. Those who have humbly served together in the past can find themselves at odds with one another in the future. It was interesting to me this week. uh, On Wednesday night, uh, I gathered with about two dozen folks from our church here to be a part of this Backyard Bible Club in the Riverbanks Apartments and the ESL classes there for the ladies in that community. And it was such a sweet night. Uh, again, if you guys weren't able to be a part of it this week, I invite you to come out this Wednesday, six o'clock. We'd love to have your help. You can jump in any week and be a part of what we're doing there. It, it was just a sweet time of serving alongside one another, perhaps laboring side by side for the sake of the gospel. And as I was enjoying that time with you guys, and I was thinking about what a sweet moment that was for our church. On Wednesday morning, on Thursday morning, I was reading this passage. And I was thinking, that's what Paul had with these ladies. There was a time when they labored side by side for the sake of the gospel. When they locked arms and they looked at each other as peers, as teammates, and they worked toward a common goal. And yet here they are at this moment on opposite sides of the room. So could this happen at Midlands? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I think as we look at Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11, the passage that Abby read, it does us good to remember what's at stake. Because these verses are going to show us, in some sense, the way to avoid becoming that room that we're imagining in first century Philippi. They show us the path for avoiding disunity. And as we heard in the passage, the key is humility. So, if you've got your Bible, you can go to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 11 this morning. Those first couple verses, of course, talk about that call to unity. And Paul gives several expressions to that. He talks about being of the same mind, being of the same love, being in full accord, having one mind. Those are all different expressions of unity. And he talks about how our unity is grounded in a common confession in Christ and fellow participation in the Spirit. The idea there in those first couple verses is that those theological realities, the fact that we participate in the Spirit together the fact that we are all in Christ as one, that those realities ought to supersede the kind of disagreements that threaten our or any community centered on Christ. And so the issues here that uh, we're dealing with here in Philippians 2 are what we would call opinions or, or preferences. A couple weeks ago, Hart talked about disputable matters uh, as being different from commands. So commands are where God has clearly spoken. This is what to do. This is what not to do. We find those in the Word of God in the Scriptures. And then there are those disputable matters where we're kind of building off of wisdom. We're acting out of our own conscience. And we may come to some really strongly held convictions that we can trace back to the Word of God in some way, but they're always influenced by our personal experience. So there are going to be some differences and things like that. We're not even talking about that kind of thing here in Philippi. What we're talking about is something that the Scripture calls preferences, or opinions or interest. And the command to us is very simple. Consider the interest of others above yourself. Consider their interest more significant than your own. And so as you read on in verses three and four there, you see that the key to it is that your actions have to flow from the proper motives. You have to have the right root in your heart in order to bear the right fruit in your life. So he says first, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The root of actions that would be opposed to community that would lead to disagreement, that would start these kind of factions like they were developing in Philippi. The root is a heart that is concerned with his or her own glory. The, the word conceit there, it basically means empty glory, vain glory. This sense of Personal superiority over others. It's looking out upon a group of people and thinking, they are all here to play a part in my life. I am supreme and they are here as bit actors in the show in which I am the star. It's this vain glory, this empty glory, that ultimately leads to actions that would downgrade their interest beneath yourself. But then in verse 3 he says, Instead of selfish ambition the root in our heart ought to be humility. We are literally to be humble toward one another. And this humility, biblically speaking, is really a proper estimate of ourselves in light of who God is and who we are. It's not downgrading yourself. It's not self-deprecation. It's recognizing this is who God has made me. This is who God is and this is who we are. And I'm gonna honor other people in light of what God says about them. That, that proper assessment of myself is going to free me to obey that central command there to count others more significant than yourselves. That's the key command of the passage. And there's some interesting language that ends up translated that way. If you look at a, a handful of different translations on this verse, almost every single translation uh, captures this a little differently because the, the Greek is a little vague. It's a little... Uh, complex to put together. But the idea is, it's, it's hard to put it into simple English is, is the issue. The, the idea is that you consider others as greater. Uh, this same word here later in Philippians 3 and 4 is going to be translated as surpassing. So you look upon the value of others as surpassing your own. Or in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 5, the same word is translated as honor. That's where we're told to honor those in authority. So for the title today, we just called it honor one another is the command that we are to live out. I actually like the way the King James puts it best. It says, we are to esteem others better than ourselves. We are to esteem them. We are to honor them. We are to think highly of them in such a way that we recognize that their interests can rightly supersede our own. Their opinions can be given greater weight than our own. So you think about that root and fruit that Paul is distinguishing here. Selfish ambition in the heart is going to lead you to overestimate your own worth. It's going to lead you to assume superiority over other people. It's going to lead you to claim, I deserve this. It's going to lead you into a corner, away from community, looking down on other people. But humility is going to help you rightly consider others as more significant than yourself. And the the, the way you do that is not to say, I don't deserve this. It's not that you drag yourself down. It's not that you tell yourself lies about yourself, like, I'm not worthy of this, I'm so bad, and everyone else is more important than me. That's, That's not a biblical view of yourself either. The way to do it is you look upon other people and you say, you know what? You deserve this. You deserve this. We together deserve better than me asserting my rights. So in humility, we are to think of, regard, consider, however you translate it, others as superior, greater, surpassing ourselves. It's simple enough, but it's hard to maintain. And we can think about how hard this might be to hold to tomorrow morning as you go back to work. You're pulling into the office. You're headed toward that parking space. It's close to the building because it's starting to rain. Somebody comes in from the other side and pulls in your spot. It's not a sin issue. It's not a conviction issue. It's just a preference. You'd rather not have to walk in the rain today. So you're going to count others more significant than yourself, and you're going to park at the far end of the building and let other people have the short walk in. Then you start work, and you get to kind of midday. You're starting to feel pretty hungry. You're about to take your lunch, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I forgot to mention, I've got a dentist appointment later. I'm going to need to take lunch first. Now all of a sudden, you've got to take a late lunch. Are you going to consider others more significant than yourself in that moment? Boss calls a meeting, pulls everybody together, says we're going to go with a little different direction for the company. We've got some new plans. It's going to shift around some responsibilities. We're not going to change anybody's compensation. I never change anybody's compensation. We're just going to change your job. What you signed up to do is going to be altered. You're now going to do something else. Are you going to consider others better than yourself in that moment? That's just at work tomorrow. We haven't even gotten home to the family or the roommates or whoever else you may share life with. So it's one thing to hold this out and say, okay, we should be humble. We should honor one another. It's another thing to live that out day by day. And I think Paul knew that. I think he got that. And I think that's why the rest of the passage turns our attention away from ourselves and our fight for humility and cast our eyes on Christ himself. But we might look to him as both the example to follow and also the one who empowers our humility. So in verse 5, Paul tells us that in order to maintain the proper mindset, we have to have the mind of Christ. He says, have this mindset in you individually so that it can be expressed among you corporately. And then he gives Jesus as the example, and he talks about how Jesus empowers genuine humility. And we see it beginning in verse 6. It says, uh, beginning in verse 6, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This gets into some pretty heady stuff. It's, it's kind of hard to wrap our mind around some of what Paul's talking about here. I think what he's saying is he's referencing the, the decision of Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, prior to the incarnation, to embrace the limitations of humanity for our sake. Part of the incarnation just means before he came to earth. That God for all eternity existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. There was unity in the Godhead. God was Trinity all along. And at some point, Jesus, the Son of God, willfully chose to embrace some limitations for the sake of others. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I think that thing that he could have grasped would have been his privileges as God. It's not that he gave up being God to come to earth. It's very important that we don't get that mindset in our head. Jesus was fully God when he walked the earth. We have to hold on to that. It's not that he separated himself from God in such a way that the Trinity becomes divided. It's very important that we affirm the unity of the Trinity throughout. But what we see is that the pre-existent Christ, Jesus the Son of God, before coming to the earth, was equal to God the Father, and he had certain rights, we might say, with that status. But he refused to grasp them. Or another way to put it would be he let go of them. He let let go of them in such a way that he willfully chose a path of humiliation for the sake of others. It, It might be helpful to think of it as sort of the opposite of what Adam did. Adam, the first man back in the garden. Adam is made in the image of God, but he's not God. And he's unsatisfied with his status as creature. And so the serpent comes to him and says, you want to be like God? You and Eve want to be like God? Eat of this fruit. And so when they sin, they turn away from the command of God. What they're doing is they're expressing this discontent with their status and they're grasping at privileges that don't belong to them. Jesus does sort of the opposite of that. He has privileges that he could have rightly uh, obtained and held on to, and he releases them. He does not consider them a thing to be grasped, and he does it for the sake of others. And that's the example that we are to follow, that we're, we're able to look at a situation and go, you know what, I could assert my rights here. I could fight for my opinion here. I could demand that my interest be served here, but I'm, I'm going to consider that a thing not to be grasped. I'm going to let go of that. I'm going to get up, I'm going to walk across the room, and I'm going to go shake Syntyche's hand and tell her I'm sorry. We're going to make things right for the sake of the church. That's the mindset that we're called to here. And Paul continues to unpack it in verse 7. He says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, it's a little tricky. We think emptied. We think, okay, Jesus emptied himself of his godness or his divinity, and he became man. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus emptied himself not by means of subtraction, but by addition. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a human in such a way that it concealed his deity to the world. It was a means of making himself known to us. It was a means of making God known to us. So to put it simply, it was for the sake of others that he emptied himself and made himself known to us, concealed in the weaknesses of humanity. It's not a perfect illustration, but you can think a little bit about Aragorn and the Lord of the Rings, right? Aragorn is the rightful king, right? He is the heir to the throne. And yet, as you read the story, how do we meet him? We meet him cloaked as a ranger, some guy named Strider that most people don't trust. People are unsure about it. They don't know what to make of him. Now, who is he in, that, in those early chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring? When you read that, who is he? He's Aragorn, heir to the throne, son of the king, future king. That's who he is. His identity does not change. But he cloaks that identity in in this person of Strider, this ranger from the north, so that people can relate to him. He's waiting for the right time to reveal himself fully. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it helps us understand how Jesus, the Lord of all, came as a servant. He he covered himself in humanity that we might be able to know him and recognize him. And in doing so, this this willful act of renouncing his rights, of letting go of the privileges of divinity, in doing that, he reveals the true nature of God, that God is a self-giving deity. He is a God who loves. He is a God who serves. He is a God who cares He's worthy of all worship, and yet he is glorious enough to surrender his rights for the sake of others. And again, Paul says, go and do that, right? Go and do likewise. Yeah, you could maybe win the argument. You could maybe have it your way. But wouldn't it be more impressive to let go of your rights, sort of hide behind your strength a bit, Embrace the weaknesses of someone else for the sake of others. That's what Jesus does, and that's what we're called to do. Then he continues in verse 8. You can kind of think of these as stair steps a little bit. In verse 6, he didn't consider the equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, then he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in human form. And then verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a long way down from the throne. That's a long way down from the eternal role as Son of God, member of the Trinity. Not just embracing humanity, but embracing death. And not just embracing death, but embracing death on a cross. The Roman philosopher Cicero said that the cross was the most cruel and hideous form of punishment imaginable. And we we kind of lose this sometimes because we wear crosses around our necks and things like that. They weren't wearing crosses around their necks in Philippi when they got this letter. All right, they weren't singing about the wondrous, wonderful, glorious cross. It was, a, it was an evil and heinous thing. It was associated with the worst of the worst. The most horrible criminals of all humanity bore their death on a cross. And for the Jews in the congregation... They knew what the Old Testament said, that he who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so Paul says, when Jesus shows us the path to humility, he doesn't just relinquish a few privileges, but then start asserting his rights. He doesn't just hide his strength beneath the weakness of humanity. And he doesn't just die. He dies on a cross. The author of life succumbed to the worst death that humans can imagine. So Jesus leaves us no room to think of any act of denying ourselves as greater than what he has already done. Right? We see the supreme act of humility, the fullest expression of humility in Christ himself. And it's complex to think about the deity of Christ, to think about the unity of the Godhead and the Son of God becoming man. It's hard to wrap our mind around all of those things. So, so let me just encourage you, don't miss the forest for the trees here the call is to humbly honor one another as we follow the example of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is no one anywhere at any time has walked a more humble, humiliating path than our Lord Jesus. And as those who consider ourselves to be in Christ, if there is any participation in the Spirit, we ought to be able to walk that same path. So Iodia... Sent a key: is it really that big of a deal those opinions you've been bickering about those preferences you've been demanding can you not release them can you not let go of them for the sake of the community and when it seems impossible when it seems impossible for us today when it seems impossible in this church when it seems impossible in your home when it seems impossible in your workplace when it seems impossible to let go of your own interests for the sake of others, the call is to look to Jesus. Look at the path He has trod before us. Look at the way He has opened to us. And look at the glory that follows. Because the passage does not end with death on a cross. Right? There's, of course, more to the story. So as you go to verse 9, you see, therefore, a major turn here. God now has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how does God the Father respond to this ultimate act of self-renunciation, self-denial, and humility? He glorifies Him. He exalts Him. He who humbled Himself is lifted high And in the most amazing display of affirmation that we could imagine, God the Father ascribes His name, Lord, to Jesus. He gives Him the name that is above every name. Yahweh, who told His people, there is no God but Me. Do not bow before other gods. says this, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, He is Lord that final phrase there, to the glory of God the Father, that's not just a little throwaway line. That's alerting us all that there's still unity in the Godhead. There's still unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. The exaltation of Christ does not diminish the Father, right? The exaltation of Jesus, ascribing to Him the name above all names, is to the glory of God the Father. That may not mean a whole lot to some of us in this room, depending on your background, because this may just be kind of what you've always heard. But if you're a first century Jew that's grown up your entire life with, with what's called monotheism, the idea that there's only one God and you've lived under those commands your whole life, and all of a sudden this guy shows up and he starts telling people he is God, that phrase is enormous to you. If you're a 21st century Muslim and you have grown up in a religion that says there is one God. And anyone else claiming to be God is lying. And Jesus was good, but he was not God. This verse right here is enormous to you. God the Father ascribes to him the name above all names that he would be Lord of all. And in doing that, it is to the glory of God the Father. They are still perfectly united. And that is the grounds for you and I to come together as the people of God because we serve a united God. Right? You see, the, the path is not Jesus humbled himself and then his interests were just forgotten. No, Jesus humbled himself and he was exalted. And the path is not Jesus was exalted so God the Father was diminished. It's Jesus is exalted to the glory of God the Father. In in math that doesn't make sense to our mortal minds, somehow everyone releases, everyone relinquishes, everyone renounces their rights, and everyone wins. That's the beauty of this community we see here. So the exaltation of Christ fuels our freedom ultimately to deny ourselves and to honor others. Because Jesus was vindicated in his humble suffering, we can trust that God will make all things right in our own situation. But there's one more thing we have to see here. We also have to recognize that God understands what genuine humility is, and He recognizes what genuine humility is not. I, I told this story at uh, the men's retreat a couple years ago. I don't think I've ever shared it on a Sunday. Uh, this is a, a favorite illustration. when my hero is a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We named our son after him. Uh, he talked about um, there was this... Gardener is a kind of fictional story to illustrate a point that Spurgeon liked to tell. And it's a good place to kind of land our thoughts here about the path of humility and the way God responds to our humility by exalting the one who humbles himself. Uh, Spurgeon said there was this gardener, he lived in this land, uh, and and there was a king, and he loved his king. He lived for his king, he wanted to show honor to his king. And so one year, his garden produced an incredible carrot. He was so proud of the carrot. The only thing he could think of that would be right and appropriate for it would be to take it and to present it to the king as a gift. And so he showed up at the palace. He walked into the castle. He came to the king and he said, King, my garden has grown the greatest carrot it has ever produced. And out of my love for you, my devotion to you, my service to you, I want to present it to you as a gift. And the king was wise. The king was discerning. He looked upon the gardener. He received the gift. He told him thank you. And he said, look, in response to that humble gift, I want to give something back to you. So he gave him this land. He said, there's this land that belongs to me, to the king. I want you to use it for gardening. I want you to garden the best garden my lands have ever seen. And I want you to enjoy it to the full. That's my gift to you in response for what you have given to me. So there's this guy in the castle. He's a lot more important than that gardener. He was kind of like a nobleman. He overhears all that, and he's strategic. And he thinks, well, if that's how the king responds to a carrot, what would he do for like a real gift? How would he respond for something valuable? So the nobleman goes home. He goes to his stables. He, he gets his finest horse. He goes to the king. He comes to the king, and he just kind of recites what he's heard. He says, king, I love you. I honor you. I want to express my commitment of service to you. So I'm presenting to you the finest horse in my stables. And so the king looks upon the horse. He looks upon the man. He's wise and he's discerning. And he says, thank you. I will enjoy this horse. You can go away. And the nobleman kind of looks around like, what do, you, what do you mean? I mean, you know, don't you want to say anything else? In the the gardener gave you a carrot and you gave him this whole plot of land. How how come with me you just, you just told me thanks and, and sent me on my way? The king, remember the king was wise and discerning. He looked upon the nobleman. He said, the gardener was giving this carrot to me. You were giving this horse to yourself. You were just trying to turn a prophet. You were pretending the path. Of humble service. And I'm seeing right through it. There's no reward for that. There's no exaltation on the back end of that. Only further humiliation. So may it remind us as we consider the call to humble ourselves and honor one another that we serve a wise and discerning king. And he knows our hearts, but he's also capable of reforming our hearts. He's capable of changing our hearts. He's capable of taking two women on the opposite sides of a crowded room and bringing them back together. He's capable of taking a husband and a wife who are ready to call it quits and bringing them back together. He's capable of restoring unity when disagreements and factions have emerged. But the path to... I started to say restoration. Let's go with resurrection. I like that even better. The path to resurrection, the resurrection of those communities, of that marriage, of those friendships, of those relationships, the path to resurrection is through humility, is through honoring one another. We're going to turn now to a time where we take communion together. and We do this every week here uh, because we believe it is important to keep the gospel of Jesus, the good news, the hope we have in Christ, central to our gathering. And this also gives us an opportunity to really respond in full to the message we have heard. So if you were with us this morning and, and you would consider yourself a Christian, if you are hoping in the gospel of Jesus, if you're hoping in the good news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross, pay the penalty for your sins, that God has raised him from the dead to give you new life, that's your, your hope today. And you're, you're walking in obedience with him. Then in a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing, and the communion is going to be available at the back of the room. We, we take it individually, so you can go back and you can take it and just dip in the, the juice and, and take that as a time of reflection on uh, the word of the Lord that we've listened to this morning. Uh, I would also say, if you're here this morning as a guest, and you know, you wouldn't consider yourself a believer. Or as you think about these things that we've talked about, you think, you know, that it's maybe interesting. I've heard it before, maybe never heard it before, but it's just not who I am right now, then we'd actually ask you not to participate in this. Uh, this is a it's a family meal. It's really an expression of our community together. Uh, you don't have to be a member of the church to gather around the table with us, but you do have to be a member of the faith. And so uh, if, if you're with us and, and you would consider yourself a, a non-Christian, just you would not consider yourself a believer in Jesus, we'd, we'd actually ask you to stay seated during this time And I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting on what you've heard. Maybe this morning you heard something you've never heard before. Maybe you've seen in your life nothing but the path of asserting your rights, grasping at every privilege possible, and demanding that your opinion wins the day. Maybe you have seen the destruction that ensues as a result. I pray today you would embrace the path of humility, but that path begins by relinquishing your rights to your own life and coming to Jesus as Lord and Savior and crying out to Him and saying, God, I need your help even now in this moment. You can pray that prayer. And He He, he is near. He will come to you just like He has come to each of us. So let me pray and then we're going to enjoy this time together. Let's go to the Lord. God, thank you for your kindness in sending Christ Jesus into this world. Thank you, Jesus, for walking the path of humility before us. It is a hard path. It is one that we barely understand. We can barely grasp the um, the things which you endured. We can barely grasp the difficulties you face. And yet we can recognize them as good for us. And we can recognize that you did that for our sake and that you laid aside your own interest for the interest of others, uh, namely those who are in Christ today. And so Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that that example would compel us and empower us and hold us accountable to the kind of life that we should live. And Lord, let us not fool ourselves into thinking we are more humble than we truly are. Help us to embrace humility for your sake and for for the sake of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.